podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. We're quite all the way there to a century. It's Wednesday, the pot of tea is on the go and we're going to take a deep dive into a decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to its football. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast. This is episode 25. Today we're going to be looking at Theo Walcott and his Arsenal career as it's been 15 years since he signed from Southampton. We're going back home to Blighty and to 2003 for the table never lies. But first, it's the fourth round weekend of the FA Cup this weekend, believe it or not. And we're going to take a look at the best FA Cup shocks in history. And we've had some great shouts from our listeners. Now let's start with the most mentioned game. So both Harry Holland and at Kieran Syke suggested Wrexham versus Arsenal. So at the time, Arsenal were reigning champions. George Graham's Arsenal had um, lost just one game in the previous season. Obviously a couple of years removed from Anfield 89. So they'd won two of the past three league seasons in England they went to fourth division Wrexham that's league two in today's money and it's a bit like if Liverpool went to Bradford City now and lost Um, this one is usually part of that stock video package courtesy of the BBC or BT alongside such uh, luminaries as Ronnie Radford for Hereford against Newcastle Sutton beating the 1987 champions in Coventry a couple of years on and Shrewsbury beating Everton um in 2003, the same sort of uh, situation there. League 2 beating a Premier League team. And George Graham's final cup match as well, let's not forget with Arsenal, was a big shock too, losing to Millwall in 1995. And a few months later, he would be gone. And ones that I believe should be included in these stock video packages that go under the radar for me, um, Oldham beating Liverpool 3-2, perhaps a year too soon to be classed as a uh, classic FA Cup shock, but nonetheless a League 1 team beating what we call today a big six team in Liverpool, had the story of Matt Smith bagging a double a player who had given up on professional football a couple of years prior. And elsewhere, Lincoln, non-league at the time, Lincoln, beating Burnley 1-0 at Turf Moor in 2017. Had the story of Lincoln becoming the first non-league team in the FA Cup quarter-final for the first time in 103 years. And of course, Histon beating Leeds. But this time, when Histon beat Leeds, Leeds were nowhere near the Premier League. And one that I think will be included will be Leeds losing to Crawley 2021, a couple of weeks ago. And fits right in here and uh, will be replayed in the same vein. Unfortunately, Charlie's win over Derby had the uh, the sideshow of COVID and Derby playing their youth team, which would have been heralded as one of the great shocks as well. Um, another one that goes under the radar has been suggested by our good friend Alex Rhodes. And he had to suggest this one because he's a Bradford City fan. Uh, Bradford beating Chelsea 4-2 at Stamford Bridge in 2015. Now, Bradford at the time were pushing for promotion to the championship. Um, They'd got to the League Cup final in 2013, as we all know, that fantastic run. And it looked as though Chelsea were just going to wipe the floor with them. Chelsea were the incumbent champions. They were under Jose Mourinho's second season. Everything was rosy. And they went 2-0 up at Stamford Bridge. So half-time, done and dusted. Off into the next round for Chelsea and Mourinho. But, obviously, Bradford would score four goals and <laughs> beat them. then beat Sunderland in the following round, but then went out to Reading in quite inauspic- 
inauspicious circumstances, really, considering the teams that they'd beaten together. Sunderland at the time were Premier League, by the way. At Kieran Syke also mentions Wigan versus Manchester City, the 2013 final, and I'll ask the question, can cup final wins be shocks? And if so, is this actually the biggest one? Because Wigan, at the time, were a Premier League team. Bizarrely, as the schedule called for it, they would play three days later against Arsenal, and three days later, Wigan would be relegated. So in essence, a championship team. Obviously, the great story of Ben Watson scoring a header in the 90th minute. Dave Whelan, who... Famously got injured playing for Wigan. Couldn't fulfil his dream. His dream then being um, played out in front of him as the owner some, you know, 60 years later. And if cup finals can be shocks, Wigan City definitely has to be in there. City were league champions at the time and won the competition two years previously against Stoke. So a similar sort of game there where it could have been a cup upset. Their first trophy in since 1976 in the League Cup. So... Cup final shocks, the main ones that we think of. Crazy Gang versus the Culture Club in 1988. John Aldridge missing the penalty. Laurie Sanchez, you know, Vinnie Jones, Fashnu, all of them. Dennis Wise. Well, that's the all-time great cup final story. You know, Wimbledon going from Division 4 to Division 1. Mixing it up with the big boys beating the, arguably the best team in, well inarguably the best team in England at the time, even though they weren't champions, Everton winning the uh, league in 87 with Howard Kendall there. But the, you know, the dynasty from Shankly to the, from the 60s to the 80s and then Daglish, they were probably, even though they weren't playing in Europe, for matters out of the players' hands, they were probably one of the best teams in Europe and would have added a couple more European Cups if they were allowed to play. Um, elsewhere, Manchester United losing to Southampton, Southampton being second tier, so it adds a bit more of a shock, even though Man United were not the team as they were under Matt Busby. They'd been down to Division 2, back up through uh, Tommy Doherty as manager, late great Tommy Doherty, and they would lose 1-0 in the final, as did Don Revy and Leeds. Now, Don Revy and Leeds, probably unlike Man United, in the peak of their powers in 1973, they would get to a European Cup final in two years' time. They'd won a couple of... Uh, Trophies along the way, their first FA Cup in the 60s, the league title as well. And they would lose to Sunderland again, another second tier side. So I think that adds a little bit more spice like the Southampton win in 76. Um, Sunderland's win as a second division team that year was the first non-top flight team since 1931 to win the cup. And that team in 1931, West Bromwich Albion. So next year that fantasy could be refulfilled for West Brom to win the FA Cup as a second tier team under Sam Allardyce if they get relegated, that is obviously. West Ham did win the FA Cup, the last team to do so as a non-top flight team in 1980. Um, I think I think this sort of, it goes under the radar because West Ham probably weren't a second division team really. They'd gone down in 1978, they had the likes of Trevor Brooking who got the winning goal against Arsenal. Um, it probably goes under the radar because he only spent such a short time outside of Division 1. Now Lelouch... Adds in Barnsley versus Liverpool in 2008. And I'll posit this, the entire tournament that year was a mess. So in round one, we've got Hereford uh, beating Leeds. Leeds at the time, obviously, in League One, so they got into round one. Chasetown knocking out Port Vale. Haven't and Waterlooville beating Notts County in round two. And Haven't and Waterlooville would be the team that you'd look out for for this tournament because then they would beat Swansea in a replay. Swansea, who were beginning their process in becoming a Premier League team, Oldham won at Goodison Park in round three as well. It doesn't get mentioned enough. 
Um, having it on Waterlooville, then got the money spinning tying round for it, drawing Liverpool at Anfield. And they went 2-1 up in the first half. And uh, if you've not seen the footage of Soccer Saturday and Phil Thompson blowing an absolute gasket there, we watch it. Uh, but they would lose, obviously. And the winner would face Barnsley in the fifth round. And again, Soccer Saturday footage, Phil Thompson going mental. Barnsley got a 90th minute winner at Anfield. The same day as Manchester United pumping Arsenal 4-0. So all the flies were dropping. And another big fly dropped in the following round. Barnsley again, the victors there. Kyoda Odejayi in at Oakwell quarterfinal 1-0 over Chelsea. Champions of the past two of the three years. Uh, that one doesn't get a mention enough as well. Uh, and then suddenly Barnsley were in the semi-finals of the Cup and somehow the only Premier League team in the FA Cup semi-final that year were Portsmouth um, in one of the most ludicrous games I think I've ever seen in any form of football. Manchester United peppered the goal they were on the way for a treble. They would win the Champions League. They wouldn't win the Premier League again. Um, but somehow Pompey stopped them winning the FA Cup. Edwin van der Sar went off injured. Thomas Kuschak got sent off. Last man. Penalty. And of course Rio Ferdinand went in net. And they would win somehow. Um, Portsmouth would obviously go on to win the trophy. The only Premier League team left. They beat West Brom and then beat Cardiff who beat Barnsley on the way to Wembley there and we've had two non-top flight teams in the semi-finals in a couple of occasions most recently in 2004 when Manchester United beat Millwall who had beaten Sunderland Liverpool in 92 when they beat second tier Sunderland as well uh, but none no semi-finals had had three in that I can in my quick research this morning that I'd found ever um, Lelouch also chimes in with Manchester United's draws against Cambridge Burton Albion Exeter um, the one thing for me um, is I don't personally mind the draws because with each of those games, Burton, Albion, Exeter, Cambridge, uh, the replay was won easily. Um, the last one, Cambridge, most recent one, uh, that was back at Old Trafford whilst the other two were drawn at Old Trafford and then obviously Exeter and Burton get another tie on TV and get a bit more money. So it's a win-win scenario for everyone really. Um, Leeds at Old Trafford as well as Kieran Syke also chimes in with, which for me is, as a Manchester United fan, as um, I think Lelouch is as well, um, this is the one that stings most for me. Um, living where I live, um, <laughs> quite close to Leeds, a lot of Leeds fans, uh, their cup final, especially in 2010 when they were in League One, uh, coming with a big rivalry and um, yeah, also that's another one that gets replayed over and over again. So that is the definitive list of all the best FA Cup shocks. If we have not mentioned your favourite or one you consider one of the big FA Cup shocks, let me know in the comments section down below. After this, we'll be talking about Theo Walcott and his time at Arsenal and at England as he signed for Arsenal from Southampton 15 years ago today. Welcome back. Now on this day, Theo Walcott signed for Arsenal and his long tenured career at the Emirates began. Um, Walcott was a star of Southampton's Youth Cup final reaching side in 2005, a team that lost out to Ipswich back then. Walcott would become the youngest player to play in Southampton's reserve team, aged 15 years and 275 days. And once he left school, he instantly joined up with the first team Scotland pre-season tour and then went on to become the youngest team, the youngest player to play for Southampton's first team, aged 16 years and 143 days, coming off the bench in a 0-0 draw at home to Wolves. 
He would play 23 times for the Saints, scoring just five times, well, in his first spell anyway, as he's since gone back last year. He was the first in a long line of a Southampton conveyor belt of youth talent. Oxlade Chamberlain would also follow in his footsteps going to Arsenal. Tottenham snatched Gareth Bale, and out of the three of them, obviously, Bale's gone on to win the most trophies, be the most successful, winning four European Cups in the process. So, today, 15 years ago, the fee was £5 million and rose to a settled £9 million a couple of years later. And Walcott made his Premier League debut in August that year, but we need to backtrack a couple of months. So, as Luch says... Walcott going to Germany in 2006 for the World Cup was insanity. So despite never playing a Premier League game, Theo Walcott was selected for England and the upcoming 2006 World Cup. Never played for the, even for the under-21s, only played for the schoolboys, under-16s, under-17s, under-19s, etc, etc. Um, would become the under-21s youngest scorer at the time in August 2006. But before that, he found himself on the plane aged 17 years and three months alongside the likes of Wayne Rooney, the talisman, Michael Owen, the previous talisman, and Peter Crouch, the wild card, the robot dancing wild card who would score against Hungary and Jamaica in the warm-up games, cutting a few shapes, and he was the uh, <laughs> the man we hung our hopes on, so to speak. He was one of 12 teenagers, Fio Walcott that is, at the tournament, which included the likes of Johan Juru, a future Arsenal teammate, and Lionel Messi and Cesc Fabregas, so eclectic mix there so he's one of the younger players selected for a world cup and the youngest is of course norman whiteside from 1982 for northern ireland at 17 years and a month and he was around the similar age to samuel Eto'o, who got picked in 1998 for cameroon aged 17 years and three months like walcott so sven's rationale was if you don't take an extremely talented player so i.e wayne rooney and michael owen who had injury problems Rooney coming off the back of a broken foot, Michael Owen only playing 11 Premier League games all season. You take a young player for the future, which Walcott definitely was. Um, He then stated that on an episode of Monday Night Football with Jamie Carragher that number 23 won't win you the World Cup, which obviously draws parallels with um, indirect competition with Jimmy Greaves being the man for England in 66 and Jeff Hurst coming off. But in this scenario, I don't think that really fits because... Jeff Hurst was essentially Peter Crouch in in 2006 terms. He was like the next man along. So I don't think that comparison is fair to uh, Walcott or Jeff Hurst, really. And Walcott was never going to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Um, he would score a hat-trick for England later on, but we'll uh, talk about that later on. So England's strikers were Rooney, not match fit. He needed a run of games historically and since um, to get up to match fitness. Wouldn't score and he was sent off in the quarterfinal against Portugal for stamping on Ricardo Carvalho's testicles. Michael Owen played 11 times all season and then got injured against Sweden, would be out for another nine months. Um, so going into the knockout stage, England's options were limited, to say the least. Peter Crouch was the next best thing. He'd scored against Trinidad and Tobago with the assistance of pulling on the opposition players' dreadlocks heading in. Um, he was the next best thing. We were going to win the World Cup with Peter Crouch and Wayne Rooney up top or going into the semi-final if England got there Peter Crouch up top on his own so there was just Crouch and Walcott left to play with Rooney suspended Owen injured Crouch one goal come off the back of a hat-trick against Jamaica though by the way so we'll be in there but there was always that risk that the gamble wouldn't pay off in selecting Walcott 
Um, some of the alternatives, let's look at some of the alternatives. Going by Premier League goal scored in 2005-06, and there was a clamour for Jermaine Defoe to be selected. Now, Defoe scored nine goals from 36 Premier League games for Spurs. His England debut came to some two years prior. He was snubbed for Euro 2004 when people think he should have gone instead of Darius Vassell. He would play 57 times, scoring 20 goals for England in a 13-year span, but was never sort of the man. He he would be selected for Euro 2012, wouldn't get minutes. I don't think he played at all. And Danny Welbeck ahead of him in that tournament who did score. Um, 2010 was probably his you know, his best time at England, with England, scoring the crucial goal that put England into the knockout phase against Slovenia back in South Africa. And a few players, the three players, English players, who didn't make the plane for Germany, but did outscore him in the Premier League, are as follows. Um, James Beattie scored 10 goals in 32 games, hadn't played for the country for a good three years, got snubbed for Euro 2004, made his debut in February 2003, where he made all of his five appearances for his country. Marlon Harewood scored 17 times in 34 matches for newly promoted West Ham, um, never played any shred of international football, never looked like playing any international football, but in terms of a man on form, 17 goals, a goal every other game isn't bad really for a team that had just got promoted. West Ham would finish mid-table, reach an FA Cup final as well. Now, my shot, if I was Sven Goran Eriksson, I would pick Darren Bent. He was the top English scorer in the Premier League all season. 18 goals from 36 games, outscored Wayne Rooney. Um, his England debut was only made the three three months prior to the tournament in a friendly against Uruguay. Would only play 13 matches for his country, which is quite ridiculous when you consider he was always there or thereabouts, really, um, playing for Charlton and then later on Tottenham. Lampard and Gerrard would score 26 Premier League goals between them and outside the forward positions in a 4-4-2, England really did rely on those goals. Gerrard scoring twice, England's top scorer at the tournament. One was gleaned from an own goal from a David Beckham free kick. Another one was from a David Beckham free kick. The aforementioned Peter Crouch header and that exquisite Joe Cole volley against Sweden. And outside of that, England were fairly toothless with Michael Owen injured, Wayne Rooney definitely not match fit. So, in terms of insanity, as Lelouch says at the top of this point, this excruciating point that I've made, it was more insane to leave him behind for the following World Cup. So, 16, 17, he gets into the squad, 21. He's just got a hat-trick against Croatia, which got England on their way. Um, the hangover from Euro 2008 is over. Fabio Capello's in charge. England are going to win the World Cup again. And then he doesn't select Fio Walcott for the tournament. So... Here are the options that Fabio Capello took. Aaron Lennon played right wing against America, Algeria. James Milner played left wing against America, left wing against Slovenia, but then switched to right wing against Germany. And Gerard played on the wing, left against Algeria and Germany, on the right against Slovenia. Um, other players included Sean Wright Phillips and Joe Cole, who came off the bench a couple of times and... We give Sven-Goran Eriksson a lot of stick for uh, playing skulls out on the left at Euro 2004, but here's Gerard in the peak of his powers playing on the wing for three of the four games, which is mind-blowing. And Capello was, as Sven, wouldn't shift from a 4-4-2. Frank Lampard, Gareth Barry in the middle. And I understand why he'd played Milner out wide, especially at that point in his career, and why he'd select players like Lennon and Sean Wright Phillips. Perhaps Joe Cole, he had a good season for Chelsea. They just won the Premier League. 
Um, he was getting back into good form. But surely there's a space for Theo Walcott in a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3. Um, even Lionel Messi was surprised that he wasn't picked for the tournament, which, you know, says it all. Um, Walcott would play just 110 minutes of international tournament football. All of them came at Euro 2012. Um, he got one minute against France in the 1-1 draw to open up. He His game is probably outside of the Croatia hat-trick. His best game in an England shirt. He wasn't even starting against Sweden in the second group match. England needed a hero, 2-1 down, conceded to two set pieces. Came on with 30 minutes to go for James Milner, scored inside three minutes with some bizarre goal that confused the goalkeeper somehow, and then assisted the winner for Danny Welbeck, that cheeky back heel in Kiev with 12 minutes left on the clock. And that performance didn't get him a run out for the last game where England sauntered to a 1-0 win, came on for 20 minutes for James Milner again. Um, I think Roy, Roy Hodgson's rationale was um, start with Milner, shore things up, especially against Italy in the quarterfinals, shore things up and then attack the last 20, 30 minutes. And that's what he did again, 61 minutes on against Italy, got an hour because it went to extra time, of course. Um, and obviously England were out. So he was injured early in 2014 in an FA Cup match against Tottenham, so meant he missed another World Cup and would be dropped during qualification for 2018 under Gareth Southgate. So would never play in a World Cup and only scored eight goals in 47 matches for England. Um, he would come into his own between 2010 and 2013, scoring 45 goals from 127 matches from right, right wing for Arsenal. Um, but after the Euro 2016 snub, he roared back, scoring almost a goal every other game. And it was at the same time where Jack Wilshere had returned. Alexis Sanchez was popping goals off left, right and centre. But then his form dipped, couldn't get a game, moved to Everton and played 85 times in three years and now finds himself back at Southampton playing all right. Um, but he's, a, he's had a lot of criticisms and from the likes of Chris Waddle, who said his game has never developed. He's not got a footballing brain. Glenn Hoddle, his Diamond Lights partner there, uh, saying he was fast-tracked for your walkers, fast-tracked, um, not getting enough coaching perhaps. Rio Ferdinand um, also saying not evolved, unfulfilled potential and it is... Definitely um, concurring with Hoddle and Ferdinand there. He's definitely shot into the limelight, really, as a 16, 17-year-old. Picked for the World Cup, you know, some say, oh, yeah, Pele was, Pele was 17, but that was Pele, and it was 1958. This is 2006, it was England, it was Theo Walcott. And he was obviously a direct, pacey player, and on his day could do go past anyone, do anything. Um, and I think, in conclusion... He was born too early because if you look at some of his goals, he got scored a couple against Manchester City, cutting him from the left, scoring, whipping them in like Thierry Henry, which didn't really help his fast tracking status, especially when he switched from number 32 to 14 at Arsenal after Thierry Henry left. Um, put a lot of weight on his shoulders. Perhaps he didn't get the coaching, but Arsene Wenger would be a man that you'd want to be playing for if you wanted some coaching. So perhaps it was being thrust into the limelight too early and 2010 he was only 21 he's coming into his own for his club and country he had that bad injury so I mean he could have easily hit his peak there and pushed on maybe England get out of the group stages of the World Cup in 2014 but I doubt it anyway if he was born say 10 years later on he'd be 21 now he'd 
be breaking in an Arsenal, let's say, cutting in from the left. Inside forwards have become all the rage recently. Look at uh, Liverpool playing with inside forwards, Mane and Salah. Man City playing with inside forwards. Sterling is the perfect um, comparison there. Playing left wing, right foot cuts in, scores buckets of goals. And Walker, I feel... 10 years ago, that wasn't really the done thing, but now he could definitely have a spot in the aforementioned teams. I mean, perhaps doesn't work enough for Liverpool, but I mean, surely under Klopp, you know, players run through brick walls for him. Um, Man City could definitely see him. Man City, 21 years old, he's in the form that he was in 2012, that sort of era. Being at Man City, he'd score bucket loads, he'd score 30 goals a season, probably. I mean, he always wanted to be a centre-forward, but now wingers are more a lot more attacking in teams like top teams like Arsenal, Man City, Liverpool, and he would fulfil that obligation. He'd want to go forward and you know attack defenders, whereas back then it was more like run down the line, cross at him. But now he could have definitely had a place in a team, a title challenging team, a Champions League challenging team. Um, but still, there was good moments in there for him. You know, he yeah, he's got a couple of goals where he's tripped and still scoring, which shows his determination. Like he he scored a fantastic goal against Chelsea in like a barnstormer of a match in twenty eleven. Um, got tripped up, burst past two players, scored, and he scored his first goal against Chelsea in two thousand and seven in the League Cup final. His first goal for Arsenal against Chelsea League Cup final. Obviously, they wouldn't win it. Um, but again, another goal where he's tripped and still scored. Newcastle, that fantastic goal. Runs it in from the corner. Again, cutting in from the left. And then just chips it over the goal. Fantastic. He scored five goals in North London derbies as well. Opened the scoring in the 2015 FA Cup final. One of only two trophies that he would win at Arsenal. They've ever been the FA Cup final um, two years later on. But again, born too early or perhaps too late. First success at Arsenal. Um, he was a fantastic player you know I mean I don't want to not saying that he's a bad footballer or he's just unfulfilled potential wise and perhaps that's our own mistakes on hyping him to the moon too early and just letting him be just letting him play at the championship levels with Southampton maybe coming up with Southampton or earning his move through a bit more than 23 games in the championship which is ridiculous I mean Gareth Bale he how many years did he have before he cracked it at Tottenham, he went like 50 games, Premier League games, without winning a game whilst being in the squad. And then obviously he then comes on to be oh, a Ballon d'Or contender for European Cups. So, I mean, he probably was overhyped and that was maybe might have been to his detriment, but he was still a fantastic player and probably one of the best wingers that England had had in that time of Capella, Hodgson. After this short break, we'll be talking about Arsenal again not in a successful time as they gave up the Premier League title. I will be going to England and the Premier League in January 2003 for the table and it never lies. Right, we're back and we're going back to England and the Premier League in 2003, the table never lies and we have to start with a record breaker, it's only fair. So, for the love of list podcasts suggests that Sunderland's best game was against Charlton, with Michael Proctor having a worldie and scoring twice. So, in a record-breaking season as Sunderland was that year, uh, only securing 19 points and winning about four or five games, I couldn't recall this match. Um, 
went onto the old YouTube, um, got myself on YouTube, and obviously, of course, I remember it. Michael Proctor did score twice. It was into his own net and in the space of seven minutes. The second one was a beautiful rebound off the goalkeeper, and it was tro- as, as bad as Sunderland are now in League One and suffering, you know, not getting promotion for a couple of years. This was horrendous. They'd sacked Peter Reid in October that we've already covered on the show. Um, after two seventh place finishes, they were skirting around, you know, lower end of mid table. Um, they'd leveled out, so to speak, um, spent big on the likes of Claudio Reyna, Jason McAteer, Tori Andre Flo, Marcus Stewart. None of them came off. They were trying to replicate uh, Niall Quinn with Kevin Phillips. Didn't happen, obviously. And under Howard Wilkinson, Sunderland could only add to wins over Leeds and Villa that Peter Reid got earlier on in the season with home wins against Spurs and Liverpool and got one point after Christmas. One point. They only scored two goals in the final 10 games, which is, they had a chance of survival after Christmas. Um, That was obviously gone. Um, They finished with 19 points, a Premier League low, and only Watford with 24 in 2000 came close up until that point, at least in a 38-game Premier League season. And I've gone through the annals of English football history and I've selected a few teams where the points tally was lower um, before 2003, obviously. So in 42 game seasons, even with three points for a win, the only the only team I could find was Stoke, 17 points in 1985. So that was the only season that I could find that was worse than Sunderland's and they had an extra four games to do it in. Now, obviously, the next few suggestions are with two points for a win, so they're not as bad as Sunderland's 19 points. Uh, we've got QPR. We've, all these have got 18 points, by the way. QPR in 1969 and Leeds in 1947 with 42 games to get those points. And in 1913, we had Arsenal with 38 games to do it in. And now in 34 game season, so even, you know, not as bad, we've got Notts County in 1905 and Glossop in 1900. So technically... Stoke's 1985 team were the worst performing top flight team up until 2003 with their 17 points from 42 games in a three points for a win world. But Mick McCarthy took over in March to steady the ship. He wasn't having any of that (laughs) that record, not at all. They failed at the playoffs the following season, losing on penalties to Crystal Palace, um, who would themselves go straight back down. Um, But Sunderland came back, didn't get the 100 plus points that they did in 99, but won the championship at a canter really. Um, then they went far better in the Premier League, gaining just 15 points, didn't win at home all season and got relegated again, smashing all boundaries with us <laughs> that record. Um, obviously, Derby County would come along in 2008 and outperform them, so to speak, with 11 points in 2008, winning only one game against Newcastle, funnily enough. And at the time I'm talking, Sheffield United need seven points from the second half of the season to avoid that. I mean, they're on course to be the worst team in English football history. Now they've got five points at the midway point in the season, so that would extrapolate to 10, but they only need three wins from 19 games. I say they only need that, but we're halfway through a season, they've only got five points. But Derby County and these Sunderland sides are a lot worse than the Sheffield United side, and in extraordinary circumstances, I think we can let Sheffield United off that. But let's... Carry on with the 2002-3 season. And Joseph Kiffin, he wrote to us, he says, Liverpool were top when I was born and then it all came crashing down. So Liverpool started the scene like a house on fire, undefeated until November the 9th. 
They'd sign the likes of El Ajjuf and Salif Jao, Senegalese heroes from the World Cup, got to the quarterfinals, as did Gerard and Michael Owen in their pomp for Liverpool. Um, they also had Sammy Herpia, Danny Murphy, John Anarisa, Jamie Carragher, Emil Heskett, Dietmar Hamann, all from the 2001 treble team. Um, the late, great Gerard Houllier performing fantastically well with this Liverpool team. And we're going to try pinpoint where Joseph was born now. Uh, it's somewhere between October the 19th and November the 9th, 2002. Let me know if that's correct. And those were the only those were the only weeks where Liverpool were top in this league season. But then it collapsed. Liverpool went an unfathomable 11 Premier League games without a win. Also in this time frame, they lost to Rafael Benitez as Valencia in the Champions League and drew 3-3 with Basel and were out of the Champions League. They would go out of the UEFA Cup to Celtic in the quarterfinals. Jersey Dudek had come into question with two absolute howlers against Manchester United in December, allowing Diego Forlant to get in and win the game there. They'd also lost to Fulham, Charlton, Sunderland and Newcastle, but never dropped lower than 7th as they'd built up quite ahead of steam early on. The form recovered right in time for another spanking off Man United in the spring, losing 4-0, two, two penalties, Old Trafford, you know, it was the Ferguson era. <laughs> I would say times are different, but they still get lots and lots of penalties, don't they? Defeats to Manchester City in the penultimate game and then in the advertised £20 million match at Chelsea, the latter being one of the biggest sliding doors moment in football, um, that surrendered their Champions League hopes. Um, they, if they won, they would have been back in the Champions League and they went ahead in West London, Sammy Herpia scoring. Um, Desai Gronkia turned it round and Chelsea were in the Champions League. The rest is history, as they say. Who else was in the Champions League? So we had Newcastle, Arsenal, Chelsea, and the other team joining them, Manchester United, the winners. And Lelouch says Manchester United beating Arsenal was sweet in 2003. So we touched on them there, Manchester United doing the double over Liverpool, but they couldn't have had more contrasting forms if they tried really. Liverpool storming to the summit of the Premier League, United in patchy, patchy mid-table form. They'd lost at home to Bolton again for the second successive year. They'd lost vital rivalry games at Elland Road with Rio Ferdinand getting quite the welcome back there. And at Main Road in Main Road's final Manchester derby, courtesy of that Gary Neville mistake and Sean Gota being fed. They'd drawn at West Ham and scraped by on Rude Van Nistelrooy penalties in 1-0 wins over Spurs and Middlesbrough at home. And then they had the trifecta of Newcastle, Liverpool and Arsenal in successive matches and this was the turning point of the season. If they won all three, they'd be back in the hunt. But if they couldn't pick up a win, it'd be like the previous season where they had to recover from a bad start and it turned out to be too late with an Arsenal side in full flow. Thankfully for Manchester United and their fans, Arsenal wouldn't be in full flow. United went into the first of those three ties against Newcastle in fifth, but stuck five past Newcastle, Forlan got the two at Anfield and the biggest one was that win over Arsenal. Arsenal had secured the Premier League title again that May um, and then six months later, Juan Sebastian Veron, Paul Scholes scored in a 2-0 win over the champions. Sticky losses to Middlesbrough and Blackburn later on in that month had United back in third by New Year's Eve, but they would drop just six points in draws to Arsenal, Bolton and Manchester City between Boxing Day and the end of the season. They put another six beyond Newcastle. Paul Scholes scoring a hat-trick there, another four beyond Liverpool in April, and for the first time in the season, they had gone top right in time for a trip to Highbury. Uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy scored that fantastic chip in that fantastic blue kit, and Ryan Giggs scored an equaliser in a 2-2 draw, which suited Manchester United a lot more than it did Arsenal. 
Leeds would win the title that year. They'd win it for Manchester United, beating Highbury, beating Arsenal 3-2 at Highbury after United had won at home to Charlton the previous day. Mark Viduka scoring the, the vital goal for Leeds there. Manchester United claiming another league title. And speaking of, Leeds United's downfall. So, as we said, Newcastle took up the remaining Champions League berth after impressing, making the last 16 group stages in Europe in the 2001-2 season. Not the Leeds' performance of the previous year getting to the semi-finals, but still for their only their second or third venture into Europe since the Premier League's inception, it was a good, good showing. By this point, Leeds United, though, were in the mud. Their high-risk spending had caught up with them, their failure to make the Champions League in two successive terms meant absolute financial destitution. They'd salvaged £52 million from sales of Rio Ferdinand, Robbie Keane, Lee Bowyer, Jonathan Woodgate and Robbie Fowler, but obviously with public knowledge that they needed the money, fund the, the transfer fees weren't as high as they probably could have been with the exception of Rio Ferdinand's £30 million to Man United. They'd finished 15th, uh, five points ahead of 18th place, and the four wins from the last six games proved incredibly crucial but it staved off the inevitable but for only 12 months Harry Kuehl Olivier Decourt and Nigel Martin would be gone in the summer whilst the likes of Michael Dubry Gary Kelly Ian Hart Alan Smith Lucas Radaby Dominic Matteo Mark Viduka and David Batty were the only big names left from the good old days you had the flop of Seth Johnson another another factor of the high spending when he was spent when he was bought for £15 million that mixed in with young names like Jermaine Pennant, James Milner and Aaron Lennon couldn't keep them up and they would be relegated. Alan Smith leaving for Manchester United after saying he would never leave for the club. But from his perspective, he left because he wanted to dig Leeds out of some trouble and that was his rationale behind that. West Ham would also end their stay in the top flight. Di Canio leaving would leave for Charlton and they will be back in 2005 as we stated before with that wonderful run of form to the FA Cup final 10th place Marlon Harewood bagging the goals Paul Koncheski with that wonderful cross come goal in the FA Cup final against Liverpool we'll finish things off with a 2000s trivial teaser after this short short break It's time to end the show with a 2000s trivial teaser. Now, we've got quite a few shout-outs to get through. I must have made this one quite easy this week. So, the answer last week was Fernando Llorente. So, he was a centre-forward, as he is, managed by Marcelo Bielsa at Athletic Club and Bob Bradley at Swansea. So, that's eclectic, to say the least. Wayne Routledge, Ander Herrera, Angel Rangel, Jan Vertonghen and Paul Pogba were his teammates there. Shout out to Mark Byrne, Nathan Oates, Teammates app and Podfather Mags for the correct answer there. So I'm going to make things a bit trickier today. So we've got centre midfielder. He's been managed by Carlos Queiroz and Sam Allardyce. He's played alongside the likes of Gary Speed, Quinton Fortune, Nicholas Anelka, Jimmy Bullard and Clint Dempsey. A centre midfielder who's played alongside Gary Speed, Quinton Fortune, Nicholas Anelka, Jimmy Bullard, Clint Dempsey been managed by Carlos Queiroz and Sam Allardyce. If you think you know the answer, let me know on our Twitter account, which is at whatif underscore YouTube. Drop it down in the comments below and we'll find out the answer next week. Next week, of course, we'll be talking about Neil Warnock at Sheffield United, South Korea 
and that 2002 World Cup run. And we'll be going to Spain and La Liga for the 2002-03 season in the table never lies. Elsewhere on the channel, we're going to be taking a look at Everton, France, Sir Alf Ramsey, Brian Clough, Sir Alex Ferguson, Derek Dooley, the 50 biggest European clubs, Adrian Doherty and FIFA Street 3. So for that, all of that and the podcast next week. Join us at what if underscore YouTube on Twitter. Subscribe, give us a like on this video down below. And next week we'll be back with some more podcast episode 26 of the Notice Nostalgia podcast. But until then, see you later. Sports Social Podcast Network.